On October the 16th, 1555, having spent 18 months in a freezing cell in the Tower of London, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were marched down to their execution. They were to be executed under the reign of Bloody Mary for preaching with faithfulness the recovered gospel and the Reformation. But as Mary's reign had begun to take hold as a, as a Catholic terror, she had begun to call these men to be, and women to be imprisoned. And on this day, they were to be laid to rest. The elder of them, Latimer, as the wood beneath them is set on fire, all of those around them listening in, he calls out to his, his friend, his co-laborer, Ridley, with these words. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Latimer's words proved to be prophetic. Within three years, Mary reign would be over and a Protestant queen would take hold. She would fan into flame, uh, fan the tiny flame that these reformers had lit into a raging fire that would sweep across England and sweep across all of Europe. But you know, I think a question comes to our minds today. For all of us who live in a politically correct, politically tolerant society, a question comes into our minds. We are used to living in a world where if our view is unpopular, if our view is, is personally damaging to us, then we can change our view so that we are more palatable to our communities and less at risk in our reputations. So the question that comes into our minds might be this. Why were these men willing to die for doctrine? These, men, these were not men of war. This was not Nazi Germany trying to take down Normandy. No. These were preachers and theologians, scholars, pastors, congregants, Christians. And their offense was simply the doctrine that they believed. We live in a society now, in a church world now, that sees doctrine as being a curse word. We live in a world now, in a church culture now, where you don't really want to focus a lot on doctrine because doctrine divides or doctrine stifles the growth of your church or doctrine invites the suspicion of people in your community. So you lay down doctrine and you just focus on big, easy stuff that everybody can agree on. And yet these men were willing to lay down their lives and die for doctrine just like that. Why? Why? Why, when we are not even unwilling to sacrifice a single attender in a church, are they willing to lay down themselves to be burned to death in front of all of their friends and family? It's because they realized that in this doctrine that we hold, in this doctrine that we teach, in the doctrine of the Bible, the glory of God is at stake. The glory of God is at stake. This isn't about our comfort. 
And this isn't about our reputation. This isn't about what the, the, the reputation of Iron City Baptist Church and the Calhoun Association. It's not about any of that. This is about the glory of God. The glory of God is at stake. And if the glory of God is at stake, let me lay down my life at whatever cost. See, the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, is that if you, don't have a doctor, if you don't have doctrine in your life worth dying over, you don't have doctrine at all. If you don't have doctrine worth dying for, you don't have doctrine worth living for. Now, not every point of doctrine is a point of death. Understand. But we're talking about the fundamentals of the gospel. We're talking about justification by faith. We're talking about no man adding to the salvation of God. We're talking about the sufficiency of Christ. We're talking about the sufficiency of the word of God. Those are things we're us laying down our lives for because God's glory is at stake. So that brings us to, to the final uh, principle of the Reformation that we're going to be discussing this morning. Soli Deo Gloria. For God's glory alone. It is the umbrella that encompasses all of the other solas. It is the aim to which every single one of us live. All of our churches are organized. It is the whole call, the battle cry of the Reformation. It is the final and preeminent uh, core value of Iron City Baptist Church. For God's glory alone, we will do all that we do. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 12. You know, I thought today was going to be the first sermon ever where I didn't have to sweat. <laughs> but we moved it inside, and here I am sweating. By the way, you're welcome for that uh, good morning uh, wake-up call that I sent you this morning. <laughs> Would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Acts chapter 12, we're just going to read verses 20 through 24 this morning. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. When we come into the book of Acts, we step into the midst of literally one of the most, most uh, remarkable times in all of history. It is just followed after some of the most incredible events, events by which we literally mark our calendars and our time. You've had Jesus, who had lived for 33 and a half years, somewhere in there, had walked upon the earth. The last three and a half of those years had used in Christian ministry, had used for the purpose of, of teaching and expressing and, and explaining what God had sent him there to do, the will of his Father, as he was carrying it out and living it out among his people. 
Just as he said he would do, just as he had predicted, just as he had always known and intended, Jesus is ultimately crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate at the cries of his own countrymen. But he didn't stay dead, did he? Three days later, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was raised in resurrection glory, walking among the, those of the earth for another 40, day, 40 days, having hundreds, if not thousands of people that were eyewitnesses that this man that had been gruesomely, egregiously murdered at their hands, now walking among them. So much so that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 could boldly say, like, if you don't believe me about the resurrection, you don't believe what I have to say, go ask your neighbor. He saw Jesus. Go talk to your boy down the street because him and Jesus, they saw one another and had a conversation. So you don't believe me about the resurrection? Go talk to your neighbor. We come into the book of Acts and what do we have? Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father where he will rule with power and grace and judgment. And the Holy Spirit of God, as Jesus had promised, descends upon the disciples of Jesus so powerfully like a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire above their heads as they have to convince the people there that day that they are not intoxicated at nine o'clock in the morning. Peter stands full of the Holy Spirit and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and 3,000 plus are saved. And it is set into motion what Jesus had promised in Matthew chapter 16. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. If you were to summarize the book of Acts into one sentence, it would be this. Jesus established an unstoppable church with his gospel. Yes, he did. And so as we come through the book of Acts, what we, come, what we come across is numerous plots and numerous attempts to stifle this young movement called the Way as they sweep across the Roman Empire with the stories and the testimonies of Jesus Christ and him resurrected and the what he could bring into the life of a poor sinner, a poor wretch like you and I. We come into Acts chapter 12, that is the setting. If you were just to go in the first five verses of Acts chapter 12, it looks grim. It looks bad. When you come into Acts 12, we are introduced to Herod. Now this is the second Herod that you and I have met in the scriptures. This is Herod Agrippa. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. You'll remember Herod the Great. He is the one that, uh, that had all of the uh, babies in Bethlehem murdered because he was trying to kill the baby Jesus. Remember that? So this is his grandson, Herod Agrippa, and we're introduced to him in Acts chapter 12, and Herod was always struggling with his approval ratings, all right? He's the kind of guy that throw on Fox News and say, okay, I'm at like 30%, we gotta do something here, I'm losing the crowd. Well, guess who was wildly unpopular among the, Jew, uh, the Jewish locals there? The Christians, the Christians. The, the Jews, the, those that had held on to Orthodox Judaism, believed that this was an attack, an all-out liberal attack on their belief system and their religion and everything that they held dear for thousands of years. And so what Herod believed was that he could go against the Christians and crush this movement and boost himself as perhaps being one of the greatest kings in all of Israel's history. And so when we come into Acts chapter 12, and what's the first thing that we read? 
that he takes James, the brother of John, and has his head cut off with a sword. Then he takes Peter, the leader, the unquestioned leader of the apostles, and he imprisons Peter, and he chains Peter up. And we get five verses into Acts 12, and we wonder, is this the end? Are the gates of hell actually going to prevail against the church? What can Peter do? What can the apostles do? What can mere men do against a force as great as Herod? But you see, there was one far greater with Peter. There was one far greater with P Peter. For as he was in the jail that night, no doubt chained, no doubt hungry, no doubt tired, an angel of the Lord came to visit him. While the rest of the prison, prison slept, the chains were loose from Peter's hands and he's walked out into the courtyard of the prison where it says in the Bible that the gate opened on its own accord and Peter walked into freedom, believing himself to be in a trance, believing himself to be dreaming all of this because it was too outrageous to be true. He goes and he comes to face to face to the house where all of the other apostles are stored up and he's talking and they, they come to the door and they're stunned. How can it be? They go in and, and she goes in and she tells all the other apostles, they say, no, you've seen an angel, you've seen a ghost. Peter is in prison. But no, the Lord had delivered Peter because the Lord was establishing a church that was unstoppable, that was irrevocable, that could not be defeated by a mere man like Herod. And so what do we see in Acts? We see that God's church is the unstoppable means by which he will reveal his glory to the earth. When we come into our text this morning, it is a stunning scene. We have a contingency of men that have come in from Tyre and Sidon Tyre and Sidon is known throughout the scriptures to be a particularly wicked and debased place. They are often used as an example in, uh, in, in, with like Sodom and Gomorrah as a place that is the utmost in sinfulness and wickedness and unrighteousness. But they are a wealthy, wealthy area. Lots of merchants would, would come through the region of Tyre and Sidon. And so you have lots of wealthy people, very influential and powerful people that live in the region of Tyre and Sidon. But the region of Palestine provided them most of their food. The region of Palestine provided them most of their food. And Herod, perhaps for no reason at all from what we know of him, other than paranoia or annoyance or some other unbeknownst reason, he takes, he takes issue with the people of Tyre and Sidon and begins a feud with them. A violent quarrel, the word can be translated. So much so that they send a contingency down to Herod, attempting to pacify Herod, attempting to, to increase the relations between the two regions so that they can have food again, so that they can be on, on Herod's good side. One of the most remarkable things that I've ever read is Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of this, who was a contemporary of this time. He writes, and he is apparently either an eyewitness or he has spoken with numerous eyewitnesses because he gives us a detailed account of this very encounter. And what's even more incredible is how these two accounts line up with one another absolutely perfectly. And I had the privilege this week in my study to read all of Josephus' words about this encounter. And so he said, Josephus tells us that, the, uh, that these men 
come in attempting to, to get back on to Herod's good side so that their land may prosper. And Herod holds them in town for a couple of days. And then as uh, Luke says in Acts chapter 12, on an appointed time, he has them go early one morning and meet him in an amphitheater. Now what you need to realize is this isn't just any amphitheater. This is an amphitheater that was built by Herod the Great, by his own grandfather. And in the midst of this amphitheater was a, a throne or a judgment seat upon which Agrippa could sit. And so he would have them meet, them meet him at this specific location. Because this location, maybe more than any other, spoke to the renown and the power and the prominence of Herod Agrippa. He would have them there early in the morning and it says in our text that he put on a royal robe or he put on royal clothes. Josephus teaches us that this royal robes that the Bible speaks of are unlike perhaps anything that any of us have ever seen before. They were woven together just for instances like this. That Herod Agrippa had actually had tailored for him a suit, a, a, a set of robes that were made of pure silver. That over, over his entire body were little chinks of silver that had been woven together. And as he walked in and approached the stage and approached the throne in the great amphitheater, the sun early that morning would begin to peek over the walls of the theater so that it beamed down perfectly upon him and it would just cause all of the, the, the silver to catch the light of the sun, so much so that Herod Agrippa appeared to be glowing. And so he would sit upon his throne and he looked deified. Agrippa was a man that was well-educated in speech and oration. He approaches and he begins to speak, bringing his proclamation to the men of Tyre and Sidon. And in the rapture of that moment, as this great king of his day preaches and speaks and gives this proclamation that determines their well-being as a nation, glowing as the sun peeks over the edge of the amphitheater, all of it announcing the power of this man. They begin to cry out, this is not the voice of a man. This is the voice of a God. And as they cry these things out, Herod just stands and receives it. And he absorbs it. And he delights in it. And he enjoys it. But it is in the zenith of Herod's glory it is in this moment in which he is literally glowing, having men worship him as an immortal, that God strikes him dead. You see, it is in the very moment that Herod is de described as being immortal that God proves his mortality. You see, Herod may have had clothes made of the finest metals of earth, and Herod may have been seated upon the most, most announced uh, judgment seat in all of Palestine. But his glory was cheap. It was temporary. In fact, it was stolen. That day, uh, uh, Josephus records a quote directly from the lips of Agrippa as he realizes that that day he will give up his life. 
He says, I, whom you call a God, am commanded presently to depart this life, while providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me. And I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. You see, brothers and sisters, there is a lesson for us to learn from the life of Herod. And it is that God will not share his glory with another man. God will not share his glory with Herod. And God will not share his glory with you and I. God will not share his glory with Iron City Baptist Church or the Southern Baptist Convention. God is unwilling to share his glory with another. See, human beings are thieves of glory. You understand that? Human beings are thieves of glory. If you go to the very earliest of human history, what you will always find is that throughout every time there's a human, there's a glory thief. Adam and Eve, why did they want to eat of the tree in the garden? Because it would give them knowledge like God, that they could be seen like God and thought of like God and have glory like God. You go to Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Why did those people build the great tower up to heaven? They wanted to prove human ingenuity and human wisdom and human brilliance. They wanted to prove that man could save himself and that man could achieve the stature of God by our own thinking, by our own logic, by our own brilliance. In other words, they wanted to prove they didn't need the God of glory to redeem them. They would be glorious in and of themselves. Just a few chapters before this, Ananias and Sapphira were introduced to them. In the early church, we have numerous early Christians that would have property. They would have land. They would have homes. They would have things of value. And they would go and they would sell them. And they would sell them so that they could give it all into the life of the church and support the membership of the church and take care of the church. So as much so that every single one that had need had their needs met. When Ananias and Sapphira watched this and they became jealous. They became jealous that, that their brothers and sisters that were giving so generously and so sacrificially were beginning to be held in such high regard by everyone else. And so they themselves had a piece of property. And they went and they sold their piece of property. And they said, look, we're going to give all of the proceedings from our property to the church. And then Ananias is called before Peter and struck down in death when it is revealed that they had kept part of it for themselves. Sapphira is brought in just after with the opportunity to repent and she is struck down just as her husband because why? They were attempting to rob God of glory that man would hold them up in esteem. Then we come to Herod. What is Herod's sin? That he would so willingly receive the praises of men that he would so willingly receive the worship and praises of men that was due to God alone. In other words, that he was willing to rob God flagrantly and egregiously of his glory. Do you want to know what the most offensive part of Reformation theology is? The most offensive part of Reformation theology is that it's not about you. It's not about you. And it's not about me. It's not about us. It's not about what we've always done. It's not about what we've always believed. It's not about the history of the church and the tradition of the church. 
It's not about my opinions or your opinions. It's not about what our thoughts on on any particular subject. It's not about what my doctrine is or what your doctrine is. It's not about us. It only matters what has God said. What has God said? You see, today, there are numerous Christians, and they will say, yes, I am a, I am a Bible-believing Christian. I am a Bible-loving Christian. I like to go to a church where the Bible is preached, and they will read the Bible, and they will love the Bible until someone in their life comes in and says, but what about this? You don't really seem to live like this. And they'll say, well, I have a different opinion on the subject. Well, I just, I have, I have a personal belief about that. Well, in, in my opinion, but you see the theology of the reformer said, it does not matter what you think. It does not matter what your opinion is. It doesn't matter what your personal view is. It only matters, is that what God says? That we cannot build the church however we want the church. We must ask, how does God want the church to be built? We cannot live our lives however we want to live our lives, living in whatever sexual debauchery we want to live in. We have to ask, how does God want us to live our lives? We cannot go and approach ministry and preaching and worship any way that we want to approach ministry and preaching and worship. We have to ask, what has God said? We don't get to worship God however we want to, y'all. We must worship God as God has demanded us worship him. It is his glory that is at stake. It is his church that is being built. We are his servants. He is our Lord. He has told us in his word why and how and the way to worship. So church, as we study the Reformation, let us not leave out the most offensive part of their theology, that it's not about you and I. It's not about what we want or what we believe or what we like. It's not about what makes us comfortable or makes us excited. It's about what God has said. See, most of us live our lives slaves to our own reputation. We do everything that we do so that we will be held in high regard. We do everything that we do. We live our lives believing that it is our name that is at stake. You know, how, why is it that we have, that, that parents, the most common thing that you hear from a parent is this, I just wanna kinda give my kids all the things that I never had. Or I, I, wanna, I wanna go to work and make all this and be able to give them all of these things because that, that way they will have the finer things of life. Most of the time, most of the time, it is because we need the society to approve us as moms and dads. We need our friends to believe that we're good parents. We need our reputation to be bolstered by the way that other people perceive us with our children. Why is it that we build our careers as we do? Why is it that we try to climb the ladder and, uh, and approach our careers and so much so that we're a different person at work than we are at home and at church? It's not because we want to maximize the glory of God. It's because we want the world to look at us and be proud of us. 
We want the world to look at us and say, man, I tell you what, that guy is sharp. That guy has it going on. And so we make our decisions dependent on how's it going to affect my reputation. Why is it that we don't evangelize? Church, you need to button up. In 2018, our value of emphasis is going to be to dine with sinners. And we are going to strongly, strongly go after evangelism. But what is the main obstacle to evangelism? I'm convinced the main obstacle to evangelism is your own reputation. That you are afraid of looking like a fool to your neighbor. You're afraid of looking like a fool to your senior adult mom or dad. You're afraid of looking like a fool to your teammates and your classmates. That you're afraid that the social cost of your evangelism is greater than the condemnation of your friends and your family. Brothers and sisters, the reformers show us that if we are to live lives that will shape a generation and we are to live lives that will change our community and I am after no less as your pastor. If we are to live lives like that, it will likely cost us our standing, cost us our reputation. Martin Luther, all he knew was the Catholic Church. It was all he knew, all he loved, and they excommunicated him. Calvin, I, I told you, he came begrudgingly into Geneva, then invested his life and poured out his life, and then was walked to the city lines in exile. Lady Jane Grey, a nine-day teenage queen, executed William Tyndale trying to bring the Bible to his own people in their language that they could read and love. Strangled and burned at the stake. It cost them their reputations. Some of them their lives. Some of them their family fortunes. All of them their popularity. Brothers and sisters, we live our lives as slaves to our reputations. And can I tell you that our reputations are oppressive slave masters. They cause us to live lives that are timid and afraid. That if it matters to me most what you think about me, then I can't lead you as a pastor the way that I need to lead you. That if it matters to me what the men uh, and, and women of Chocolaga Valley think of Cody Hell, that I can't say certain things and do certain things that the Bible compels me to do. You see, a timid church is a church without impact. A timid church is a church without witness. A timid church is a church without power. A timid church is a church that will exist without miracles. A timid church is a church that will only know what our ingenuity and our brilliance and our efforts will bring. But brothers and sisters, I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the testimony of the reformers is calling us to be a courageous church, to walk against the culture of our community and the culture of our society, to stand boldly upon the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, I told the teenagers something two weeks ago that I think bears repeating now. I told him, I said, you know, you're going to go, you're going to put your books in your locker and you're going to want to be really quiet about what you learned tonight. 
Some of you might even be so bold as to walk with your Bible, but you're going to walk with embarrassment and shame, and you're going to put it down as quickly as you can. But listen to me, young brother. Listen to me, young sister. Walk the, the halls of White Plains High School and Cleveland County High School with courage because you're a Christian. You're a Christian. You walk in resurrection power and resurrection glory. Walk with your head held high in the power of Jesus Christ. You are a Christian. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. When you go to Honda, walk with your head held high. Walk with courage and boldness because you're a Christian. When you're a teacher, teach and be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ with courage and boldness because you're a Christian. When you, t when you have your grandbabies over to your house and you're not really sure they're getting the gospel in their lives, man, sow the gospel with boldness and courage. You're a Christian. If, the, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Amen. Church, we cannot have any influence in our community being timid. But what might God do? What might God do with a church full of people, hundreds of people, that lay down their reputations, lay down the need to be approved by their neighbors, lay down a willingness to be embarrassed and uncomfortable to walk courageously for Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus raised him, that Jesus was raised from the dead and stepped into time and saved you for you to live timidly? No. Walk and live with courage, for you are a Christian. You know, the truth is, is that on this day, Herod had a great opportunity in front of him. Herod, the Jewish king, the one to whom the revelation of God, the, the people to whom the revelation of God had been given to, the testimonies of the, the Red Sea and, and of Jericho and all of the history that came with that. He had a unique opportunity in history to do what maybe no man had had the opportunity to do before. As this contingency of Tyre and Sidon began to sing his praises and declare him a God, he could have hushed the crowd and used his position of prominence and his throne and his influence to tell them about the true God of the universe and exalt the name of Jesus Christ. You and I have that same opportunity. Maybe we aren't kings, but every single one of us are people of influence. Every single one of us have friends that listen to us. Every single one of us have family over whom we have influence. What will you do with yours? What will you do with yours? Will you use yours to cause them all to think highly of you? Or will you use those relationships to cause them to think highly of Jesus? Because Christians live solely Deo Gloria. For the glory of God alone. Let's pray together.